Well, this morning we're going to be continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount. What does it mean for us to be Jesus' people? I have a little bit of an admission to make. I plan my sermon series out a year in advance. And so usually in, in May or June, I'll take a, a two-day uh, sermon study retreat where I just dig into God's Word and I spend a lot of time in prayer and I just try to figure out what God wants us to do for the coming year and then plan out the calendar uh, all from you know September through the next uh, end of August. And uh, that's been our routine here at Lakes Free for many years. Well, this past summer, as I was uh, on my sermon planning retreat, and, and uh, seeking the Lord's will for what he wanted us to cover this year as a church. I just really felt the Holy Spirit telling me that I, he, the, he just kept saying, Jason, bring him back to Jesus. We need to, we need to go back to Jesus. And so I just felt really compelled, you know, to dig into the Gospels and figure out what exactly does that mean? What, is, what does God want for our church this year? And I started, uh, I started leaning towards the Sermon on the Mount. And, and again, I, the Holy Spirit was prompting me in that direction. And I started reading the Sermon on the Mount. I was studying the Sermon on the Mount. And the more I read, the more I studied, the more I was saying to the Lord, no, Jesus, I think we're going to go a different direction. <laughs> and uh, honestly, like, I, I don't know if you've had this experience this year so far through this series, but this is challenging stuff. It just, like, it rubs against everything we are in our fallen sinful nature and the, the ethic of, of the kingdom that Jesus is calling us to. What it means to be Jesus people is so countercultural. And, and I kind of wrestled with God for a couple days trying to, like, uh, you know, justify myself going a different direction. But I just kept felt, feel, feeling the Spirit pushing me back to the Sermon on the Mount. And, you know, it, it, it's good for us. We need that. We need that, that tension, that struggle. I, I was at the dentist this week, and I was thinking of it as I'm sitting there in the dentist chair, you know. The, he's got his drill going, and he's got his, you know, file and all that stuff running. And, and I'm thinking, like, this is like, I, this is torture. I hate this. But it's good for me. I need it, right? And, and that's sort of our experience in studying the Sermon on the Mount. I came across a quote this week of, uh, from the great scholar C.S. Lewis. He actually had a pretty similar experience with it. So we're in good company. Uh, C.S. Lewis had once said that he, wasn't, uh, he didn't care much for the Sermon on the Mount. And, and uh, one of his critics had attacked him for that statement. And so he actually wrote a response. What, what did he mean? What, what was he getting at? And he said this, as to caring for the Sermon on the Mount... If caring for here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. I mean, isn't that true, friends? Like, there's nothing about this sermon that we've been in this year that we read and we're like, oh, that's just such a lovely teaching. No, it's like getting hit across the face with a sledgehammer. And it's the Holy Spirit sledgehammer waking us up to the reality of just how desperately we need Jesus. Remember, this ethic of the kingdom, what it means to be Jesus people, what we've been looking at the last two Sundays, these revolutionary relations that Jesus calls us to, we can't do this on our own. And so the Holy Spirit sometimes has to knock us flat on our face and remind us that, look at your only hope, Jason, your only hope, church, is to, to fall back into the arms of Jesus, to rest in his amazing grace, and to let his spirit empower you to live this out, because there's no other way to do it than to be empowered by his spirit to live the way of the kingdom. 
We're going to see that again here this morning as we continue on in uh, part two of this, uh, this two-week mini-series on revolutionary relations. You know, last week we looked at this really challenging teaching of our Lord, right? Like if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other cheek, right? And if somebody asks you to carry their burden, you carry it the extra mile. And, and it was this whole teaching that Jesus gives us about when, when we're persecuted and when we're oppressed or we're, we're, when it's, we're insulted, we don't retaliate. All right, but now this week, Jesus is going to take this thing to a whole new level, a whole new level of challenge for us as his people. Let's take a look at our passage this morning. We're in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. We're sort of at the halfway point here in the Sermon on the Mount, believe it or not. And uh, today we're continuing in these antitheses that we've been looking at in recent weeks. What the Pharisees were teaching, their corrupted, perverted vision of the law versus what God's true intent for the law is. We're going to be here this morning in the sixth of these antitheses. So Jesus says to those listening, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You feel the weight of that sledgehammer this morning, friends? Let's pray and ask God to illuminate his truth to us today. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, who gave us this teaching. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you can come and illuminate these truths for us and help us to apply them to our hearts. And so we just pray to you today, triune God, that you would help us as we approach this very challenging text and that we might receive it in a spirit of uh, of humility, that we might desire to walk in obedience to this teaching. And help me, Lord, communicate clearly. Help my friends to have open and discerning hearts and minds as we study your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here in our passage, Jesus is getting to the revolutionary kind of love that he is calling us to as Jesus' people. Remember, this whole Sermon on the Mount is in the context of Jesus speaking to his disciples. What does it mean to be a person of the kingdom? What does it look like to follow Jesus? And, and again, now he's sharing us this ethic of, of revolutionary love. And the first thing that we need to understand before we can truly discern the, the call that Jesus is giving us is what is at heart here, what's at stake here, what was the error that the Pharisees were making? Remember, we're in these antitheses. The Pharisees were saying one thing, but Jesus, the word in flesh, was teaching us God's true intent for the law. And, and to understand this particular teaching, we have to understand what the Pharisees were doing in their corruption of God's will for the law in the area of loving our neighbor. In uh, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, God had told his people this, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, this was God's will, his revealed will to the Israelites, his law. They were to love their neighbor as themselves. 
And as you can see here, this is a very different thing from what Jesus describes the Pharisees were teaching. The Pharisees, verse 43, were teaching, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, that doesn't sound anything like what God says in Leviticus 19, verse 18. The Pharisees had corrupted God's intent for the law and God's intent for our love. They did this in five ways. The first thing that the Pharisees did is they omitted the phrase, as yourself. Remember, God's law of love was to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, the Pharisees removed that as yourself piece and simply declared, love your neighbor. And then they added the hate your enemy. But, but in removing the as yourself, what the Pharisees had done here was they took a command that was all about how we are to love and they turned it into a command that was about who we are to love. Okay? God says we are to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, right? Like do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? The golden rule. And, and we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. But the Pharisees took that yourself off the end of God's command, and they interpreted it as a command to simply love their neighbor. And then they added the phrase, secondly, they added the phrase, and hate your enemy, and hate your enemy. Now, friends, understand this. That phrase is not found anywhere in the Bible. There is nowhere in the Bible where God says, hate your enemy. All right? The Pharisees added this phrase, and, and, and why did they add this phrase? Well, they used a sort of perverse logic. They, they thought to themselves, look it, we're called to love our neighbor. What's the, the opposite of that? Well, obviously, you have to hate your enemy, right? If you're going to love your neighbor, you hate your enemy. And so they used this perverse logic to come up with this perverted teaching of the law. Love your, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And then they asked the question, well, who exactly is my neighbor? And so thirdly, what the Pharisees were doing is they were limiting the term neighbor to their fellow Israelites. Okay, so anybody who wasn't of the Jewish people, anyone who wasn't of the nation of Israel was an outsider. They were others. They were, they were not neighbors, and we are then called to hate them. You love your neighbor, your fellow Israelites, and you hate your enemy. Again, this was nothing, there was nothing about this that was scriptural. This was all just their corrupted vision. They justified this view, number four, by abusing other scriptures. Okay, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. And they had to find some scriptural justification for this. So what they would do is they would point, first of all, to God's commands to Israel when they were entering the promised land to wipe out the Canaanites. Okay, so for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, we read this command as the Israelites coming out of the exodus in Egypt, coming out of the wandering in the wilderness, there was this period where Joshua led the people of Israel in the conquest of the Canaanites, and God told Israel that when he gives them over to you, you must defeat them, you must, not de you, you must devote them to complete destruction, you shall make no covenant with them, you shall show no mercy to them. God had ordered the Israelites, when you go into the promised land, I want you to completely eradicate the Canaanite peoples. That was God's command to Israel. And so the Pharisees looked at this command, and they took this as saying, well, see, God hates his enemies. But that is not at all what God is saying here. 
This was a judicial command of God, an act of judgment rooted in God's holiness and righteousness, where God used the people of Israel as his instrument of judgment against the sin of the Canaanite people. And by the way, God had given the Canaanite people over 400 years to repent of their wickedness just horrible, awful, depraved wickedness, including things like child sacrifice. I mean, these were wicked, depraved people that for 400 years God was patient with, and finally God's patience came to an end, and he used the Israelites as his tool of judgment. But even in that, in judging them in his holiness, in his righteousness, God takes no delight in the destruction of the wicked. In fact, in in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23, God literally tells us that, that he does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. Yes, he's a holy God. Yes, he's a just God. He is a God who brings judgment against sin. Friends, God's going to do that again in the end times at the second coming of Christ when he is going to once and for all time destroy all sin, evil, and wickedness in this world. It's going to make the judgment against the Canaanites look like a preschool, you know, children's game. But God's a God who judges sin. But the Pharisees took this judicial judgment that God had ordained in his holiness, and they took it as an excuse to apply to all of their enemies God's hatred, when that was never what it was about. God does not hate these people. It was the sin that God was judging. The other scriptures that they used to justify their their corrupted version of this law, they would point to the imprecatory psalms. Now, the imprecatory psalms are a group of psalms written by King David where King David says some pretty nasty things towards God's enemies. Like you may maybe have come across these reading the psalms. David says things like, God, I want you to smash your enemy's teeth out, right? Like just like, just nasty things. But again, David is praying these imprecatory psalms in a spirit of perfect hatred, of, of perfect righteousness, directed against the sin of the enemies of God. Notice, none of these imprecatory psalms does David say, these are my enemies. No, he prays these prayers against God's enemies. And it's a perfect hatred rooted in God's holiness and God's righteousness. And notice David here, for example, in Psalm 139, after he prays for the destruction of God's enemies, look what he prays in the very next breath. Search Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Can we go to the next slide, please? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So David prays that God's enemies would be destroyed, but then he prays, God, and check my heart as I pray this prayer. You know, it's interesting, every once in a while I'll come across Christian scholars today online who will advocate for Christians. You know, we need our churches to be praying more imprecatory prayers against God's enemies. You know, destroy your enemies, God. And friends, I don't trust myself to pray those kinds of prayers. Like, like I don't trust my heart to pray those kinds of prayers. I'll leave those prayers to David, all right? I'm not going to pray those prayers myself because my heart is sinful and deceitful. And I don't trust myself to pray those prayers in true righteousness, true holiness, as David did under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But again, the Pharisees pointed to things like these imprecatory prayers, and they said, see, that justifies us in hating our enemies. And then uh, fifthly, what they were doing is ultimately they were disregarding the wider commands of God. 
So they completely ignored teachings like Proverbs 25, 21, where God said, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. They ignored passages like Deuteronomy 23, 4 through 5, where God says, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Throughout the Old Testament, God told his people in a variety of ways, not only to love their neighbors, but to love their enemies and help their enemies and serve their enemies. All right? The Pharisees, what they had done is they were twisting God's word. They were twisting scripture. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to be a part of, uh, I was one of the editors for the uh, Apologetic Study Bible, the Christian Standard Version Apologetic Study Bible with my friend Sean McDowell. By the way, Sean's going to be with us next year uh, uh, for our apologetic conference at the end of February. So uh, mark your calendars. It's going to be awesome. But um, one of the features that we had in the study Bible, we had a section throughout the Bible called Twisted Scriptures. And these were areas where we would highlight ways that false teachers and false prophets and cults and false religions over the centuries had twisted scripture to fit their own man-made teachings. Friends, have you ever heard somebody say you can make scripture say anything you want it to say? That's absolutely true. You can twist scripture to make it say anything you want it to say. But, what, but that doesn't mean that what you say it says is what God said it should say. You know what I'm saying? Like, let me put that in simpler terms. God has revealed truth for us in the Bible, and we have no right to distort, deny, or defy what God has revealed as truth to us. But this is exactly what the Pharisees were doing. They were twisting God's word to fit their corrupted understanding. And this is where we come to Christ's call. Christ's call in his call to us as Jesus people to love in this revolutionary kind of love. Verses 44 through 47. Here's the antithesis. You have heard it said this, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see the difference here? That's a huge difference between what the religious teachers were teaching and what Jesus says was God's heart for the law. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is the revolutionary call to love that God has given us as his people. It's the command to both love and to pray for our enemies. Now, the term enemies here in the Greek is ekthros, and this refers to a personal enemy, okay? Somebody who is personally opposed to you, who is personally hostile to you, personally standing against you. This is not our national enemies, okay? This has nothing to do with Russia versus Ukraine or America versus China. This is about our personal relations, just like last week was about our personal relations as disciples of Jesus. When we look at people in the world who are opposed to us, who are hostile to us, who are, who are seeking to oppress us in our personal lives as disciples, followers of Jesus, Jesus calls those people our enemies in this context. And what does he say our response should be to these enemies? We're to love them and we're to pray for them. Okay? Now, once again, Jesus here is bringing us back to the heart of God's law his true will for our lives. And notice, friends, with this command, like I shared earlier, Jesus takes us way beyond even what he commanded us last week. Last week, he says, look, if somebody insults you, don't retaliate to that insult. 
But now Jesus goes far beyond that. He says, not even are you, should not, not, not just don't retaliate, but actually actively love your neighbor and pray for their well-being. This is an incredible command, the revolutionary call of Jesus to love our enemies. What is this love that Jesus is talking about here? The love that Jesus is talking about here is a Greek term, agape, agape love. It is the highest form of love. It's the kind of love in which God loves us. Agape love is a deliberate, determined, selfless, sacrificial love. This is a choice kind of love. This is a love where you love, you choose to love, even when you don't feel like loving. You choose love. And this is what Jesus calls us to, to love our neighbor with this kind of deliberate, determined, selfless, sacrificial love. It's a choice. It has nothing to do with our feelings. Did you notice that in our passage this morning? Jesus doesn't say anything about your feelings towards these enemies. It's all about this conscious, deliberate choice that we make as his followers to love our enemies. We choose love. It has nothing to do with feeling. This is completely, radically different from the kind of love that we so often hear about in our culture today, right? Like, what is our culture's vision of love? Our culture's vision of love is, it's all about feeling, isn't it, right? Like, oh, I just feel so good when I'm with him. He just makes me feel so special. I get these warm fuzzies in my heart, right? It's all about our feelings and how the other person makes us feel. And, and when that person no longer makes us feel, right, what do we say? Ah, oh, you know what, I'm not feeling it anymore. I'm done with this relationship, right? Because we've made love all about feeling. That's not at all the kind of love that God calls us to. God calls us to a deliberate, conscious choice to love even when we don't feel like loving. That's agape love, and that's the kind of love that Jesus says we should apply even to our enemies. What does this kind of love look like? The Apostle Paul describes it like this in 1 Corinthians 13. This kind of agape love, this is the same love Paul talks about here. This kind of agape love is patient and it's kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Again, this is that agape love, this deliberate choice to love even when you don't feel like it. Agape love looks to the enemy in your life, looks to the one who's hostile to you, looks to the one who's opposing you, and says, you know what, I'm going to practice patience towards that person. I'm going to be kind to that person. I'm not going to be rude or arrogant or boastful. I'm, I'm not going to insist on my way, okay? I'm going to love and I'm not going to rejoice in evil. This isn't an excuse for the evil actions of our enemies. We don't rejoice in their evil, okay? But we rejoice with truth. And love bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things. Love never ends. This is the love that God calls us to as his people. Probably the greatest picture of this kind of love that, that I know of is the story that I shared with you last week about the five missionaries who were martyred back in 1956. 
This past year, I read a great biography called Becoming Elizabeth Elliot. Elizabeth Elliot was the wife of Jim Elliot, one of the five martyred missionaries in 1956. Two years after the Aka Indians savagely speared her husband to death, Elizabeth Elliot and her little girl Valerie moved back into the jungles of Ecuador to live amongst the very people who had killed her husband, savagely spearing him to death. Why did she do that? Why would she do that? She didn't do it because she liked those people. In fact, she, she even herself talks about how she wrestled with the fact that here she is sleeping right next to her husband's murderer. But she went back to those people out of agape love, a deliberate choice to reach out in love to these people because they needed Jesus. They were destined to an eternity in hell separated from God if somebody didn't bring them the gospel. And so she went. This is agape love, friends. Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. You know, I wonder what it would look like for us to exercise this kind of agape love in our lives. You know, you think about that. Who, who are the akas in your life? Who are, the, who are the people that God might be calling you to actively love, even though it might be hard, even though you don't feel like loving that person? Maybe it's your husband or your wife. And you know what? Maybe you're in a tough place in your marriage right now and you just feel like, I, I, I just don't feel like loving that person. God says, choose love. It's a deliberate choice to selflessly and sacrificially love, even when you don't feel it, even if they don't deserve it. You choose to love that person. Maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's a, a challenging teacher at school. Maybe it's a coworker or boss. Maybe it's a, a wayward son or daughter. Maybe you have a prodigal in your life who strayed from the Lord and, and you need to respond in love to that person. Maybe it's your Democrat or Republican friend in your ABF group here at church. Love your enemy. Jesus says to be a Jesus people kind of person is to choose, choose love. And notice, friends, when we love this way, with this kind of agape love, we show the world who we are, who we truly are as children of God. That's what Jesus' point is in verses 45 through 47. He says, why do we love like this? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Friends, Jesus is saying, look, at if you're a follower of me, if you're one of my disciples, the love of Jesus people should look different. And it should be a love that reflects the love of God, an indiscriminate love. What does God do? He lets the sun rise on the evil and on the righteous. He gives them both rain for their crops because God loves indiscriminately. And if you only love your, your friends, well, gee, the tax collector does that. And if you only greet your brother, well, how are you any different than anyone else in the world? Jesus is saying that Jesus people kind of love goes way beyond 
It's a totally different kind of love. It's a radical kind of love. Matthew 5, 16, remember Jesus says, let your light shine among men that they might see your good deeds and give praise to your Father in heaven. That's why we love as Jesus' people. And I want you to notice, what is Jesus doing in this revolution I call to love our enemies? He's flipping the Pharisees' corrupt vision of love on its head by transforming our enemies into neighbors, which was always God's intention for the law and for his people. This is what Jesus gets at when he shares the story, the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. That's what it's all about. Behold, a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? See, that was the question that they were wrestling with because the Pharisees said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, right? So this guy's just curious, like, well, who am I supposed to love? Who's my neighbor? And Jesus, okay, Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, these were the temple workers. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, the despised enemies of the Jews, the half-breeds who lived in Israel, these were Jews who had intermarried with the pagans, the Canaanites, who God had told them to eradicate. No, these people intermarried with them, and they were the ages-old enemies of the Jews. But Jesus says it was one of these people, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where this injured man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And Jesus said, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This was Jesus' intent all along. This is what agape love looks like this deliberate love that jesus calls us to exercise as his people now what about this command that jesus gives us to pray for those who persecute us why does he call us to pray for our enemies well friends i think for two reasons number one prayer entrusts our enemies to god see here's the thing you can't do anything to change your enemies hearts but god can and so jesus says pray for your enemies I, I, I was humbled this week. I was literally humbled to tears in my office this week. I was scrolling through my X feed, formerly known as Twitter, and I came across a video by this man, Russell Brand. If you know anything about Russell Brand, he's been a popular comedian for about the last 25 years. Russell Brand, a British comedian, performs some of the most vile filthy, misogynistic, disgusting comedy you would ever hear. He's irreverent, he's anti-God, he's anti-Christ in his comedy. 
And I can't tell you how many times I've come across things of Russell Brand that I just shake my head in disgust. And I think, man, this guy's got judgment coming. Well, this week I was scrolling through my X feed and I came across this video by Russell Brand. Take a look. Can we restart that, please? Maybe get the volume up. Well, let's, let's, let's go ahead, Dave. Basically, if you have a chance to see this video, Russell Brand goes on to describe his, his spiritual journey and how recently he's become attracted to the teachings of Jesus Christ. And he talks about how he's currently reading Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, and how he's discovered that the ethic of Jesus is opening up his eyes to a whole new way and a whole new way of living. And, and, and again, if you see the video, like his theology isn't all solid and, you know, it's obvious this guy's, a, you know, still on the journey. But what struck me was is here is this guy who so many times I had written off as a heretic destined for damnation. And yet God's working on this man's heart. And I just felt like the Holy Spirit was saying to me, Jason, how many times have you looked upon people like this with an attitude of judgment and what if instead you had spent that same energy praying for that person? Jesus says to pray for our enemies because when we pray for our enemies, we're entrusting them to God. The second reason why we pray for our enemies is because prayer transforms our hearts. Prayer transforms our hearts. Friends, do you know it is literally impossible to pray for somebody without starting to love that person? When you choose an agape love to pray for someone, even an enemy, even someone you don't like, even someone who doesn't deserve your love, when you choose intentionally and deliberately to pray for that person, God begins to transform your heart. You might remember this past fall when we were in the Beatitudes, I shared a story in our sermon, Blessed Are the Merciful, about Mary Johnson and O'Shea Israel. Back in 1993, O'Shea, when he was a teenager, shot and killed Mary's son at a party. He went to prison, and when he was in his court, Mary Johnson testified against him, and she describes how she had hatred in her heart towards this young man because he took her son, and she hated him for it. Well, he went to jail in Stillwater. These are neighbors of ours here in Minneapolis. He went to Stillwater Prison, and over the years, Mary Johnson, who was a follower of Jesus, she felt God touching her heart and compelling her to start praying for O'Shea. She started praying for O'Shea, and pretty soon, she felt compelled to forgive him. So Mary Johnson made an appointment to go and visit O'Shea at Stillwater Prison, where she forgave him for killing her son. She went home and she kept praying for O'Shea. Pretty soon she started recognizing she not only forgave O'Shea, but she actually loved O'Shea. Three years later, when O'Shea got out of prison, Mary's love for O'Shea compelled her to invite him to come and live in the duplex next to her as her neighbor. And today, Mary considers O'Shea her son because of her prayers that transformed her heart. Friends, maybe there's someone in your life that you need to start praying for. And maybe the transformation that God desires to work isn't just about them. Maybe it's about you. Are you willing to pray that kind of prayer? Those are scary prayers to pray. To pray for your enemy. 
But if you will, friends, I promise you, what you'll experience is amazing. And no, God might not transform that relationship, but I do promise you he will transform your heart when you love your enemy and you pray for those who persecute you. This leads me to point number three this morning. How is any of this possible? It's only possible through the clarity of the cross. In verse 48, Jesus concludes his teaching here. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Scholars tell us that word perfect in the Aramaic, the language that Jesus spoke, that word perfect means all-encompassing. And so in the context here of, our, of his call to love others, what this means is Jesus says, your love is to be all-encompassing just like your heavenly Father's love is all-encompassing. You're to have an all-encompassing kind of love. Now you might be thinking, is this really even possible? I believe it is, friends. We've already seen a number of illustrations of it this morning. But it's only possible It's only possible when we have our vision shaped by the cross. We need the clarity of the cross. We need to put on our cross-shaped lenses, friends. See, the reality is there's only one way to live out these commands of Jesus, these commands to love even our enemies, and that's to view our lives and all our relations through the lenses of the cross. See, when we look to the cross, we remember that we too were once enemies of God destined for judgment. The Apostle Paul, he helps us to put on our lenses in Romans chapter 5. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God incredibly showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. What does Paul say here? He says, you were once enemies of God. You deserved God's wrath. But God, in his amazing grace, in the greatest display of agape love this world has ever seen, God sent his son Jesus to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could experience peace with him. Friends, how can I refuse to love my enemies when God so loved me? Do you remember what Jesus said as he was being nailed to that cross? As they were pounding the nails through his wrists, he prayed. He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Who was he praying for? Yes, he was praying for that Roman executioner hammering the nails through his wrist, but he was also praying for you and for me because it was our sin that held him there, as we sang earlier. 
And when we look at the cross, and when we look through the lenses of the cross at our enemies, and when we recognize that Jesus died for them just like he died for us, how can we not exercise the same kind of love that Jesus so graciously gave to you and to me? And here's the thing, friends. When we put our trust in Jesus, when we receive the forgiveness that he offers us, as Paul says here in Romans 5, 5, the Holy Spirit pours his love out into our hearts. See, we can't love our enemies in our own power, but through the cross and through the transforming power of the gospel and through the love that the Holy Spirit pours out into our hearts, that love then can overflow even to our enemies. And so when Jesus calls us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, the only way to do that, friends, is to do it with cross-shaped lenses. Look at your enemies through the eyes of the cross. Let's pray and ask God to help us in this high calling for the sake of the kingdom and for the glory of God. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this incredible vision you've given us of kingdom love. And we confess this morning that it is so very challenging because it is so contrary to everything that we think and feel in our fallen sinful nature and in this fallen sinful culture that we live in. It's so countercultural. But Lord, you tell us that this is the way of the kingdom. This is the way of Jesus' people. And so Lord, first and foremost, we recognize just once again how desperately we need you. We can't love like this in our own power. And so Jesus, we, we ask you to again keep, fill us with your spirit. And may your spirit continue to grow and, and fill us to such, such fullness that it just overflows out of us and allows us and inspires us and empowers us to, to live out your agape love, even for those who are hostile to us, even to those who oppose us, to our enemies. Help us to love them as you have loved us. Help us to pray for them, Lord. Prayers of transformation, prayers of hope, prayers entrusting them to your sovereign goodness. And as we pray for them, Lord, do your work of transformation and transformation in us as well. Jesus, we thank you for this teaching and we pray that you would help us to live this out for your glory. May our light shine as we live out your agape love so that men may see our love and give praise to our Father in heaven. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, would you stand for our benediction this morning? And before I share this, let me just say, if anybody would like prayer today, some of our elders and Stephen ministers will be here at the front. We would love to pray with you if you desire. I leave you with these words from the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. God bless you and have a great week. Amen. Amen.